0: We all get formed by our own experience, right? And especially if um, you haven't seen many, many other marketing teams or marketing contexts, you know, industry sector focuses, it's so easy to assume that what you see and what you've built is normal for everybody, and it
1: just isn't. B2B has the potential to be electrifying, but the industry is paralysed by a culture of conservatism. Scared stiff in a straitjacket of rational ideas, it's time for Change. It's time to make B2B marketing visceral. Join us as we uncover and explore the truth with leading B2B marketers. This is B2B Marketing, The Provocative Truth. Hello and welcome to B2B Marketing, The Provocative Truth. I'm Benedict and today I am joined by the CMO of payments um, company, Paddle. Andrew Davis, welcome to B2B Marketing, The Provocative Truth. Thanks so much, Benny, it's good to be here. Wonderful to have you here. Now, obviously, I've just given you the briefest of brief introductions. I think I did manage to at least sort of locate the sector for Paddle, but probably everyone would benefit from you just giving a maybe a quick overview of a little bit about yourself and also, importantly, who Paddle are.
0: Yeah, sure. So my name is Andrew Davies. I serve Paddle as chief marketing officer, um, formerly ran brand digital and demand for Optimizely after it acquired the business that I co-founded, Um, And Paddle is a payments infrastructure provider for SaaS companies. So when you're scaling a software business globally, there are all kinds of complications over local sales tax law and subscription management and willingness to pay and price optimization in different territories and different payment acceptance providers you need. And Paddle just takes away all of that complexity. So SaaS founders can focus on their customer and on their product and leave all of the financial infrastructure to us. Um, We've also acquired a business called ProfitWell last year, which is the leading SaaS metrics platform, SaaS pricing strategy team, and SaaS retention tool. So we really, our aim is to allow the makers, the creators, the, the SaaS founders to focus on what they want to do best and automate as much as possible of
1: the operations and growth of their SaaS business for them. Wonderful. Well, that was actually as far as what was essentially a little bit of a pitch for paddle goes. That was one of the more enjoyable ones. There was a nice narrative to it. I think you you took me to that place of all of that pain and discomfort that um business leaders would face and how you sort of alleviated that. So, well done on that that front. But today we're going to be talking about something which I think you you kind of implicitly mentioned a couple of times. You talked about sort of the the challenges of business scaling, and then you also talked recently about an acquisition that Paddle have made. Um, now, we all know, and whether you're in marketing, whether you're in anything else, and also just instinctively, you bring companies together, there is going to be some pain points, there's going to be some friction, there's going to be a hell of a lot of adjustment that people need to go through. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is what that looks like from a marketing perspective. And the reason why we're going to focus in on this is because to give a bit of a provocative truth, I think that not only do marketing departments struggle to establish their own identity post um, M&A, but also they fail to realise actually the really critical role that they have within the wider company of bringing companies together, making sure there is that sort of collective identity. Um, is that something you'd agree with? Yes, uh,
0: acquisitions are really messy. They're really
1: hard. Um, as, as added context,
0: I sold my business into a roll up. So i was sell side once and then buy side yeah. four times in a year and a half at Optimizely, and then did another acquisition last year. So I've been involved in a whole bunch of these over the last two and a half years, and they're always really messy, really chaotic. Uh, and I believe marketing has an important role to play.
1: So, what do you think? If, if we are to look at it, as I said, there's loads of chaos. But specifically, if we're just to look at the marketing department, um, what are the key, I suppose, struggles that emerge um, when you try to smash together two marketing departments? So... There's some of
0: the obvious things. Firstly, you've got two different teams. There might be some overlap in different people's roles that you've got to work out how you normalize. Um, but you know, the, 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 it's also just the break, the makeup of those teams will be different. They'll be formed in different environments, different contexts, and uh, they'll be running in different ways. So it's the ways of working as well as just the people who are on that team. Then there's usually different tech stacks um, that you've got to work out. You know, which tool wins and how you integrate them. But I think below all of this, there's a there's a marketing philosophy that sits behind all you know well-performing mm. marketing teams. And when you acquire a business, you acquire a different marketing philosophy. And you've got to really mm. deeply understand that in order to build a unified philosophy going forwards. I think one other aspect that usually raises its head in early and mid-stage um, growth acquisitions, is that this is often the first time that your business now is multi-product. Because mostly, mm. you're know, often in the acquisitions I've been part of, it's a single product company buying another single product or multi-product company. But in any scenario, suddenly your product mapping becomes much more complicated than it has done before. And the audience you're going after becomes more complicated. So that's an extra struggle that marketers have got to grapple with.
1: And I'm interested, I mean, it, it, it is interesting that you started actually talking around sort of the the difference in terms of marketing philosophies just to sort of illustrate the the point are you able to elaborate on what those different marketing philosophies that you've experienced when going through that process and how you both understood and then reconciled them yeah absolutely so we all get formed by our own experience,
0: right? And especially if um, you haven't seen many, many other marketing teams or marketing contexts or marketing industry, you know, industry sector focuses, it's so easy to assume that what you see and what you've built is normal for everybody. And It just isn't. Um, so as a couple of examples, at IDEO, which was the business I co-founded and was CMO of, Um, at the point of exit, we had a very strong whale hunting outbound ABM process. So we were closing Intel and IBM and Salesforce with our web personalization software. And every penny we spent in marketing was against the 200 target accounts that we were going after globally. There was no wastage. Everything was the the flipped funnel where we did all of our analysis up front, new detailed uh, insight about every person we were trying to reach. And then we put every dollar, every cent and every every minute of our day about going and winning um, winning those those very senior buyers from la- very large companies. Mm. Now, it was a, quite a purist ABM approach. We got acquired by um, EpiServer mm. at that point, which was a big .NET CMS that sold 40 50% of its revenue via channel partners. And so actually, you often even didn't have a good relationship with the end customer because it was mm. the marketing agency that was selling to the end customer, and a bunch of your demand just appeared through marketing and strategy agencies that that, that would then help buy the license. Um, And suddenly, also, we went from a target account list of 200 very large companies to tens of thousands of mid-market businesses across a much wider range of geos. So that's one small example of going from what we'd felt we built for our context was a high-performing marketing function that just would not survive in this brave new world. And I saw that happen a few other times. Um, and then in our recent acquisition of ProfitWell, you know, Paddle has, has grown like an absolute weed over the last four or five years um, off a few very simple tactics. Outbound BDR cadences, some event sponsorships, you um, working with, you know, software founder communities Whereas ProfitWell have done a fantastic job of building an extremely strong thought leadership brand. Patrick Campbell and Pete Zotto and the team there are known in the industry as experts on pricing and retention and SaaS growth. And so it was a much more of an inbound process where they were out speaking on the circuit, preaching the message, and the leads followed. Um, so yeah, those are just a couple of examples of the practical differences that you can, you can go up against. And of course, our challenge as marketing leaders is now to create what you know how we work together and what our our new philosophy yeah. is going forwards
1: and so in terms of shaping that that new philosophy and i think that you've you've almost given some you know, beautiful <laughs> contrasts there uh you know an abm approach versus a channel partner approach Then you've talked around sort of like having a much more sort of inbound marketing approach versus an outbound marketing approach um when you have those sort of polarities that it exist and clearly it can't be one at the expense of the other and there does need to be that sort of at least interaction between the two Mm -hmm. What's the process you go through in terms of understanding what is going to be most appropriate and then I suppose goal setting um, so people can actually be working towards that same direction?
0: So the first, you know, my first instinctive response is you've got to really deeply understand each of those motions, particularly the ones Mm -hmm. you've not worked with before. And I'm preaching to myself here because even though that would be my first instinct, I think in every circumstance, I still have not spent long enough getting under the skin of the business that I'm walking into or the business we've acquired Mm -hmm. and their way of doing things. It's, you know, it's very easy to look at some of the data in HubSpot or look, look at some of the data in Salesforce and speak to a couple of the people in marketing and feel you've got a handle on it. But usually there's, there's years of experiments and things that have and haven't worked that's in people's minds, that's outside of any documentation, outside of any, any core operating system. so. Absolutely, you've got, to, you've got to understand. The second thing is that, as we said, if you're now building a more complicated go-to-market with multiple products, probably serving multiple you know, ideal customer pro- profiles, there's a need for yourself and for your entire team to understand the new economic engine of your business. So if we take Paddle, you know, as a payments platform, we take a percentage take rate of all the underlying software revenue that we're helping process. So that's a usage-based price. It's a percentage of underlying revenue. There's no ongoing SaaS license fee. That's one model. And then we've got our Price Intelligently team that effectively are charging an annual sprint for what is human services, very different margin profile to the payments business. And then we've got a pure software business in Retain, um, which is charging a SaaS license fee that's paper performance. And then we've got a free service, a free product called Metrics that has 30,000 customers using it, but we don't make a cent off them. So the first thing you've got to do after understanding these different go-to-markets is to help teach the team their importance in our business model, in our economic engine going forwards. Mm. Um, And that's a process of relearning it ourselves. And also, it's a company strategy question. Where do all these pieces play in where we want to go in the future? Where can we sell them together? Where do they have different target customers? Where is it a a process of land and expand to get somewhere? And where do we see the the real prize in two, three, four, five years Mm. is that we have to build towards?
1: And I think it's interesting that you mentioned there in terms of the relationship with actual more macro sort of like business strategy. Uh, do, do you feel that you've been able to take the opportunity that M&A creates for actually marketing to take a more active role in shaping that business direction and also that, that business strategy? I
0: think it's Ben Horowitz that says the company's story is the company's strategy. Um, and I think that's one of the key roles of marketing in this complexity, mm. the chaos that comes after M&A. So absolutely, I believe marketing should have a seat at the table in discussing and determining mm. what that strategy is. But probably the even more important role is that marketing should be giving that as a tool to the organization, to the customer base, to the market, the story of where we're going. So if we just back and look at a couple of those examples again, when IDEO was acquired by EpiServer, EpiServer was this very staid, very robust Swedish-based .NET CMS that wanted a best-of-breed content analytics and personalization provider because it knew that its personalization, content personalization capabilities weren't up to speed. So there's a story we could tell very easily mm-hmm. there um, about bringing this you know, very robust toolkit into a more modern world then when we acquired Optimizely, Optimizely a fantastic leader in experimentation and multivariate testing and A-B testing. And so there was a story we could tell there about how it doesn't matter how good your commerce cloud is or your content cloud is, but actually experimentation is the heartbeat of change. And if we're in an economy and a market that survives on being resilient to change, then experimentation has to be the heart of your content engine, of your commerce engine. Um, and so those are just two examples of, of stories you've helped play out. And with the Paddle and profit well, example you know there were almost no capability overlaps in the acquisition so it's very synergistic from a product perspective But we had a very similar philosophy, which is that we don't want to just build better software for SaaS founders. We want to take away the problem that they're actually trying to solve with that software. So we call that Just Do It For You. So with Paddle and with several of the World products, this doesn't just help you have a better report to do something yourself. It takes away the problem out of your organization. And so we had this thesis that we could help SaaS founders automatically grow and scale their businesses using our suite of tools and we're playing that out in the market as well now so i do believe marketing's most important role post m&a is to cast and recast and recast that compelling story that unifies the team and also the customer bases that are probably disparate from the acquisition
1: and and this idea of unifying the team and unifying the company is something (laughs) i want to sort of touch on in, in a second but um you, you talk there around that. fundamentally, the reason behind a, an acquisition is always to add to your capabilities. And really, if you're adding to your capabilities, you are changing or at least you are embellishing your your story. And um, so. Given that that is the case, and actually that the story evolves with every acquisition, do you think that many companies make that mistake when they just simply subsume the brand into the master brand, and they don't look at how they can give that nuance to the narrative? So I guess
0: first thought is that, you know, I think some acquisitions don't change the story because they're just a revenue Mm. acquisition, or they're replacing a capability, which is perhaps, you know, um, is redundant or it's uh, it's obsolete, mm-hmm. and you want to upgrade. So there are some situations where there is no story change. But, um, and sometimes it's a, it's an aqua hire, right? We're bringing on a team yeah. to go and do something. Um, but you're right in most situations, that is the case. Um, I think it's interesting mm-hmm. when you look at what the brand decisions are, and there's some you know, some data on this, McKinsey's and others have looked at this. Um, really, you've got a couple of decisions when it comes to the brand. You either have them separate, the independent brand approach, or combined, you slam them together in some mm-hmm. um, or you create an umbrella, some brand hierarchy, or you choose an entirely new brand but the mm-hmm. most popular uh, outcome is a single brand. You choose one brand over the other. I think about 40% of acquisitions, 40 or 50% of acquisitions, choose that one approach over the other. And what's really interesting is that 80% of businesses that have acquired a company complete that brand transition within 18 months. Uh, and I think it's about 65% complete that transition within 12 months. And so in most acquisitions I've seen, um, speed is one of the things we're optimizing for. Now, when we're talking about the story, you're right that there might be you know, some real nuance that we have to play out in making sure we reimagine that new story, and that takes time. But actually, part of storytelling is making things simple for our team, for the market, mm-hmm. for customers, for new prospects. And if we're too slow over doing that job, actually, we're not benefiting from many of the financial and, uh, and social and you know economic benefits of that acquisition, because we're just not moving fast enough to give clarity and simplicity to the market.
1: Market. So, do you think in most cases it is it is actually almost the the rule that you should go as quick as possible in terms of getting to that new brand position? Because I think it's always really interesting that you speak to some marketers who are very much well, I need to understand the nuance, I need to take time, I need to make the assessment, and it's a slow transition. Whereas there are some people actually on the other end of the spectrum who are almost dogmatic about it, being like, no acquisition, bang, it's done. And um, where do you sit on that spectrum? And I appreciate there's always going to be you know different usually different cases but at a sort of a principle do you think actually it's better to be fast about it better to be decisive about it mm-hmm.
0: Um, yes, of course, there's some reasons and some examples where it shouldn't be the case. But yes, I, I believe that you should be fast over mm-hmm. this. I think it solves so much um, confusion mm-hmm. for people in the business and outside of the business mm-hmm. when you're really clear over where you're going to. Um, you know, a, a, as an example of this, when Episerva acquired Optimizely, you know, we had this challenge. And, you know, I, I was leading that project with Kirsten, the CMO then, of what what brand do we choose Again, Portmento is EpiServer is Optimizely. And we had a strong thesis in the business that... EpiServer was not a good future-facing name for that combined entity. Um, Mm. Server is what we're trying to get everyone to migrate away from. And epi is associated with a whole bunch of medical terms in the US market, Um, (laughs) nothing to do with content management system. And so there was some inbuilt belief, but we went and did a pretty belt and braces approach of looking at the digital gravity of both of those words and those brands Mm. and the content that was associated with them and and doing market research on how people perceived those brands. And it was very clear to us that um if you think about the buying cycle episerver had incredible strength in the kind of the second half of the buying cycle the validation the checking the analyst relations the community the implementation providers um all the content about how you get live with it was fantastic whereas optimizely was superb at the prospect story um and we we came to a very you know i believe you know quick um and easy Uh, decision to adopt the Optimizely brand, because we felt that was much more future facing for the problems we were going to solve in the future, Mm. um, rather than, you know, harking back to the historical excellence of the episode of brand. So we made that decision probably within three months after acquisition. And, you know, nine months after acquisition, it had all been rebranded, which for an organization of 12, 1300 people was a pretty fast pace. um, But it was so essential to give the market a clear lead of where we were going.
1: Yeah, and it's something that I would agree with. But if you'd have asked me or spoken to me maybe eighteen months, two years ago, I think mm-hmm. that I would have be I would have equivocated more about what the right answer was. Mm-hmm. But having gone through you know experiences both directly, but then also on behalf of of clients, that ability to be decisive to give that certainty. Even if it's not 100% right, certainty, actually, 90% right is better than 0% anyway. And so I think being decisive is so, so important. Very, very much so in terms of um, being able to articulate your story to customers. But also, and you've mentioned it, being able to um, communicate to the business. Because I think one of the big problems when you have an M&A, if you do run with two parallel brands, is that people are so emotionally attached to the heritage brand that it becomes a huge obstacle um, to, to get past and the sooner that you can give that sort of new story, the better. From, from your experience, like what are the key things that marketing needs to get right in terms of facilitating that sort of identity shift which needs to take place in the wider organization?
0: So I think firstly, understanding the complexity of that in most software acquisitions, the existing brands the legacy brands run through the code base, like our blood runs through our veins mm. and so you know as marketers it's very easy to go oh I'll just rebrand it we'll change the website it's fine but if you've got a big dev community and you know that there, there is a there's something technical in nature in your product which you can't just change on the front end you know your api calls will be referring to specific brands specific company names etc um i think it's recognizing that it is complex and it's just not as easy as just changing changing the the, the front end not as easy as changing the powerpoint Secondly, I think it is, you know, one of the best ways to approach this is to reinvigorate the existing brand as part of this. And so it can be a combination that produces a better rather than just a, oh, we'll take over what was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really do think that, you know, again, um, preaching to the converted and, and sounds really <laughs> obvious, but taking the time to really, truly enable everybody. Um, so, why are we doing this? what's it going to look like? How is this going to actually show up in your day-to-day lives? Uh, And taking the time to do that properly because – Again, super easy to create a new PowerPoint template and tell everyone to use it. But when you suddenly go in and see the you know thousands or tens of thousands of slides that need redoing um, in a customer service reps environment, for example, unless you actually grapple with the chaos and grapple with the complexity there, they're not going to be on board with this massive change that gives them an operational burden and actually doesn't give them much benefit in their daily lives. So one of the things that I think central marketing needs to do in that environment is win the resource and actively resource Helping people change and update how they are showing up, whether it's signatures and whether it's PowerPoint templates and whether it's, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the general swag, making sure that they are empowered to do this rather than just making it part of their day job, someone who's not in marketing at all to show up in a new way
1: yeah no i absolutely agree absolutely agree well look, it's been a really great conversation but we can't le let you leave without asking our house question as we like to put it um okay. and this is a little bit of a change of gear from you know main part of the sort of conversation we've had but it's still so vitally important especially within the context of, of b2b marketing um and i'm really really interested when was the last time that you saw marketing and you know that can be marketing in the form of an advert from it's a creative, it could even be an article, who, who knows, that made you feel it in your guts, that moved you on a deep emotional level.
0: <laughs> so I will firstly give one very self-serving one um, to, to test, test the waters with you, um, and then I'm <laughs> going to give you a, a proper one, because... <laughs> One of the things that, having been through a bunch of M&A over the last few years, one of my aspirations for this last acquisition was that we would be able to do exactly that. And we would take the opportunity of signaling to the market our new story. Um, So Mm -hmm. early on in the acquisition, I actually asked our legal counsel and got permission to put cameras inside the deal room of that acquisition. And so we published an acquisition documentary behind the scenes of a $200 million acquisition that I can share with you afterwards. You can share with the listeners if it's interesting. And we cut with an award-winning documentary filmmaker. We cut a 20-minute documentary behind the scenes of a $200 million acquisition and what it did was it it wasn't going through you know all the boring legal paperwork uh, and all the financial machinations it it had tipped a bit of that but it was telling the deeply personal story of a ceo acquiring another ceo's business of these two founders christian and patrick um and the reason we did that the insight was that we serve saas founders and in a in a, in the in the life cycle of a software founder they almost always they want to get acquired at some point or acquire other companies at some point and so this hmm. was a moment hmm. in time that spoke viscerally to our audience and so why wouldn't we use that opportunity to put cameras behind the scenes and make sure that we could tell that story in a way maybe that you know others wouldn't be able to um so you know that that's a that that's an example maybe self-serving of one that uh, i from the feedback we've got i know has punched a few people in the gut
1: Well, I mean, look, I think, to be honest, you you, you backed it up with uh, there's a very sound rationale for why you did that in terms of the insight that you've just described and the sort of level of empathy and understanding that you want to show to your sort of like audience groups. It absolutely makes sense. It also obviously I haven't seen it yet, but I can definitely imagine that there would be drama. Uh, I mean, I certainly would hope that there would be drama. I'd hope that there'd be a little bit of friction. I hope there'd be a bit of disagreement that might, might go on there, but maybe not. Maybe it was all extremely, extremely amicable. But uh, I think that's a great example of actually sort of brands realizing that they potentially sit on absolutely gold content um and it's authentic as well so
0: absolutely and there were there were door slams and problems and some jeopardy involved in that um but you know if we're talking about the wider gamut of marketing not just brands the thing that most interested me about that was um in the following few months in our gong calls our call recording software we had 50 prospect calls where the prospect raised the acquisition documentary as something they'd seen or watch um and so watching that come through into the attribution was just super interesting
1: yeah, that, no, that is um, well. I'm looking forward to seeing it now. And your other one, you've so you've done your self-serving one, and you know you're wearing a paddle cap and a paddle hoodie, and now you've talked about a paddle bit of creative. So, watch something from the the wider world. <laughs>
0: uh, wonderful, wonderful. Cool. so benny let me give you let me let me give you two other um ones that that punched me in the gut uh, one in a negative way one in a positive way so there's one that you'll have definitely seen which is uh, i think it was EDS the HP company um which was cat herders now this is an ancient video that's been around for ages um i think you can just probably find it on youtube youtube yeah. and it punched me in the gut because um you know you remember it there's a bunch of cowboys herding cats in the outback um and it was it was a pretty um uh, visceral retelling of some of our office uh, issues politics how we how eternal internal alignment and internal yeah. marketing sometimes goes so that's one that that really resonated with me in terms of they had a core insight that they were trying to tell mm. and they told it in a really really creative way um, and then it's,
1: it's, it's an oldie but it's a goodie as they say so <laughs> <laughs> it is it is uh,
0: and then a slightly newer one which I really struggled with and I knew at least one person at the team behind the agency and I knew a couple of people at the vendor. But Thunderhead, which was a cross channel marketing platform or is a cross channel marketing platform, they came out several years ago with a a Viking ad where they had this this Nordic gentleman very you know um, beefy in, in, in Viking gear who would storm into a car showroom and, okay. um, and and basically was trying to tell the story of personalization. but in one of the cuts that they then quickly edited um, the the process of uh, feeding customer data for the purposes of this automotive recommendation were, you know, the, 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 the sales rep, I think, uh, you know, sucking from the nipple of this Viking who had stormed into the, stormed into the car showroom to give this cross-channel marketing data. And, um, it was utterly bizarre. And it was one of those incredibly well-produced social video and then across YouTube ads, which uh, as a marketer in the marketing space, I totally didn't understand what it was doing. What it was trying to do um, felt extremely cringy, but I hope they achieve their their objectives.
1: Uh, w- wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, as I haven't seen it, hearing that description, I think that it's even more difficult to work <laughs> out what the the suckling metaphor would be within this this particular context but I mean it sounds memorable it certainly sounds memorable which is I suppose I half the battle. It. if we're being generous yeah. if we've been generous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think well that was a, that was a fantastic um I think but slightly unexpected um sort of tangent that we went off at the end but I'm very very pleased that we did uh, but I also um uh, you know going back to I think probably more sort of like serious issues which was it was around what we we're talking about uh, how marketing deals with sort of post m a um a really really fascinating conversation so thank you very much for that and i think that one of the big things which really really stood out for me which i know that we, we talked about uh, in the beginning sorry in the middle of the, the the podcast is that importance of being decisive now actually being decisive is probably more important than being right but certainly if you think about the clarity that you need to communicate to your external audience um, Being decisive is important, but arguably it's even more important when it comes to your internal audience and actually the change management that needs to go on because I don't have the stats for this, so I'm probably just making it up. But I would imagine a lot of m as fail because the internal change doesn't happen in the way that it does. Um, so giving that sort of clarity, giving that focus and understanding how you can take people um, towards that is absolutely key. Um, so look, Andrew, and it'd be an absolute pleasure. Thank you very, very much for joining and uh, thank you for sharing the suckling salesman. I think that's uh, definitely... one. For the ages. (laughs) No worries at all. Thanks for your time, Betty. B2B Marketing The Provocative Truth is brought to you by Allen Agency. To find out more, head to Allen Agency.com. You can stream B2B Marketing The Provocative Truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. And don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Allen, thanks for listening.